Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you for this place. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Um, Father, I pray that everyone in this room, everyone watching online, everyone that encounters this beautiful um, narrative about your son can come to know that, that this is not about earning man, but it's about instead accepting and, and releasing and breathing in what he offers and that we can be empowered through that, Father. We pray for that. We pray for that. Um, thank you for your son. Thank you what he came to do on this earth. Thank you for, for giving us the opportunity to come face to face with him through the book of Mark. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, I am, um, I, this, okay. My name's Chris. A couple of us have met, right? Some of you have not met me. I always like to do this the first few weeks because it's so cool when new people sign up. We're so thankful for that. Um, but I wanted to say a couple things. I, I sent an email out this week. If you didn't get my email, tell your small group leader. I think I sent it like last week. But tell them because communication's important. We wanna make sure you're getting everything. Um, and one of the things I said was something that we always start out our studies talking about. And I don't know if we actually said it this time. So I am going to say it. Um, number one, you're pretty. We're glad you're here. So happy you're here. Number two, um, one of the things I made a point of saying was, to remember that when you sit down with God's word, to trust him. And what I mean by that is we ask our, our, our participants and me included, like I sit down and do my homework, just like you, to not grab a commentary or not grab a podcast on you know, the book of Mark or some great pastor who just taught about it or, or articles or whatever. We ask you to sit down with your Bible and sit down and, and say, okay, God, open this up, show me. And then just trust him, trust him. And we, we talked about it. I, I said, uh, you know, Jen Wilkin down the road has a great phrase. And she said, there's going to become so many times where you're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to dwell in the I don't know. Anybody, anybody there this week? Yeah, I know. I'm going to have to talk about some of those places. I know that you were dwelling in the I don't know. Well, I was too. And I think there's beauty in that. And so we trust God with that. Um, I'm a commentary. Nice to meet you. We say commentaries because we want you to understand that those are literally just someone's opinion, right? When I get up here and talk, you'll hear me, I'll quote, you know, commentaries, uh, other, you know, brilliant, amazing scholars I'll quote, I'll quote authors. I've been known to quote a song lyric or two here or there. But really, I am just another voice giving you opinion, okay? So what we ask you to do is sit down with your homework, spend time with God, just you and him. And then when you come in, talk to the people in your group, discuss some things, listen to this commentary, and then go home and listen to all the commentaries in all of the land, okay? Because there's always gonna be things that you're gonna be like, well, I don't know exactly how I feel about that. And that's beautiful. We want you to question. I think God wants us to question, right? Because through questioning, we learn more. And so I just wanted to remind you of that, that, that commentaries, me, what you read after you do your Bible study are basically to help you understand, you know, to, to provide cultural, um, uh, historical references, maybe to help you interpret some things or guide you in applying scripture. That's what commentaries are for. So when you sit down with your Bible, let God show you before other voices do. Amen? And if you have any questions or anything about that, go to your small group leader, send them an email, jot down a, something on a piece of paper and they will get it to me. And I will go to smart people and get answers for you, okay? Well, last week we talked about the beginning of Mark. We talked about the beginning of Jesus's ministry, didn't we? We talked about how it started out with this preparation, remember? There was the baptism and then there was Jesus in the, in, in the temptation in the wilderness, right? And, and then there was the beginning of it and then there was the action, like he launches right into some, 
some like really cool healings and things like that, right? And so we are off and running. And so this week, when you were at home, you were looking at Mark chapter two and chapter three. So if you have your Bible, open your Bible to Mark chapter two. That's where we're gonna go. We're gonna break it down like this, okay? The first thing we're gonna do, did you, did you notice like over and over, there was a couple, of, a couple of groups of dudes that were mentioned, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. Did you see that? I did too. And I was like, wait, who? I wanna know more about who these people are because they seem to have a prominent role and they do. So the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about who those guys are. Just a real quick background, okay? Second thing we're gonna talk about are the rules. We're the rules, okay? And that goes right along with the Pharisees and the scribes. And see, Jesus at the time was breaking them. What they thought he was doing was breaking them. So he was going up, pushing up against everything they knew and showing them this new era, Okay. We're gonna look at the rules. We're gonna look at the loyalties. Who were his loyalties? We're gonna look at the followers. We're gonna look at his friends and then we're gonna look at his family. So everybody relax because I know some of y'all were like, he was not nice to his mama. Well, we're gonna go there. Just calm down, okay? We're gonna do that. So stay awake. The last thing we're gonna talk about are the needs. Like I love that um, through Mark two and three, Jesus is gonna be very clear with us about what we need. We're gonna look at a healing true healing. And then we're going to look at what we need in the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, so stay with me. We're going to cover a lot of content really fast. Um, the first thing we're going to look at is the Pharisees and the scribes. Context is key. Remember God's word was written for you, for me, but not always to me, right? Not always about me. And so this is a great example. You're going to see some, some contextual things here with these Pharisees and scribes, and we need to understand who they were because what we understand about them is going to help us then understand about how Jesus is going to approach these things. Okay. So the first thing, that word Pharisees, those dudes were like pious Jews. Okay. And they were rigorously following the laws of Moses. You see back in the old Testament, Moses laid out very specifically quoted directly from God's mouth, his rules for his people, his laws for his people. Now, remember this, God made laws and rules for his people to protect them because he's like God and he knows what we need and he knows what we don't need, okay? So he laid out all these rules. Now, here's what the Pharisees did that got a little tricky. They then took that and added their own stuff. They um, opposed any Greek or Roman influence, so they were very particular and very specific. And remember, this is probably written um, to the Roman believers. So there's, this is happening in Rome. We're seeing a lot of interesting things going on, and so you know that there's this bias, okay? couple strikes the Pharisees have against Jesus already. The key though, is that while they were following these laws and rules in Exodus, they had raised up their own traditions and their own appearances above the matters of the heart, above the matters of the heart. I've learned recently, like it's so important when we look at God's word to ask, what, what is the heart of God behind this? And all of the things that God laid out had a heart of good, of care, of love for his people. Pharisees, not so much. Josephus is a Bible scholar during the Bible times. And he said that there was roughly about 6,000 of these Pharisees during Jesus's day. It's a lot of guys, okay? They were middle-class lay people and they had a very broad support. So, so they weren't necessarily the higher ups, the politicians, if you will. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, the scribes is another thing we saw a couple of times, right? Because I kept thinking, what's the difference? Well, let me tell you the difference. Scribes 
were, were guys that had knowledge of the law and they could actually draft legal documents. Every, every like village or city had at least one scribe in it. And oftentimes they were also Pharisees, okay? And in this instance, you're gonna see, I think we even saw a quote that said scribe of the Pharisees. So we know that some of these scribes that we're, we're directly looking at were Pharisees as well, okay? So the Pharisees were middle-class lay people. They had a broad level of support because they're just living amongst all the people. And here's some bonus content. You're welcome. In other parts of the New Testament, you're gonna see another term that I always got confused too, and I hope this helps you. They're the Sadducees. You ever heard of that word? The Sadducees. And here's what those dudes are, okay? Those guys were actually upper-class aristocrats or, or, or priests, and they had a lot of political power, Okay? And so they were slightly different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were among the people. There was a lot more of them, okay? But something that was interesting, I, I, when we see what's happening in Mark 2 and 3, what we see is that, that, that Mark wants us to understand what the motive of these guys was at the time. A couple weeks ago, we had the privilege of getting to go um, go to one of our church plants, Wellspring, in China Spring. It was so cool getting to see one of our best buddies up there preaching. And, and he happened to say this one thing, and I wrote it down. He was actually talking about Jesus telling us how to pray um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It was, it was a beautiful sermon. But one of the things he said that just really stuck out that I, I thought about this week was this. He said this. He said that Jesus us, empowers us as believers to work from an identity, not work for an identity. Let me say it again. As followers of Jesus, that we get to work from an identity, not for an identity. You see, these people, these legalistic Pharisees who had raised up their own rules and regulations and show above what God commanded were all about earning. They were all about what can I do to be seen this way? What can I do to earn this? But see, Jesus comes and turns everything upside down, doesn't he? His kingdom that we talked about in chapter one, verse 15, I think, where he says the kingdom of God is here, that's completely different from what these guys are living out, okay? And so Jesus is turning everything on its head. We're not striving to earn something. Instead, Jesus is gonna show us how to stop striving, right? Well, that's, that's the small, short version of the Pharisees and the scribes. And here's why it matters, because we're gonna move right into all these rules that they got mad at Jesus about, okay? In your homework, if you got to, uh, I think it was question six or something, be cool, don't be mad. There was five things that happened in this text in chapter two and three, five different things that, that, were, um, that were controversial things that Jesus was, was in conflict with, with these scribes and these Pharisees, okay? We're not gonna hit all of them real specifically, but we're gonna cover a good portion. So here, what we're gonna talk about are three things that you need to know that the Pharisees and the scribes were getting real mad about. Ready? The first is this, feasting. The first was how he was feasting, okay? Open up your Bible to chapter two, verse uh, 12, I think is where it starts. Verse 13 is where it starts, just to kind of set, set the deal. Um, remember, at the time, we've already got a couple of disciples have been called. We know that some have been called. We haven't gotten a lot of details through Mark yet about who else has been called. But now in chapter, th I mean, verse 13, we see that he calls a guy named what? Levi, yeah. And let, just a little side note, Levi is actually Matthew. Okay, we're gonna see that name change in, in just a little bit, but Levi, so he calls this guy Levi. Why does this guy even matter? Well, he was sitting at the tax booth, verse 14. Levi, Matthew, was a tax collector. Now, 
Verse 15, we go on to see this. And as he reclined at a table in his house, that's Jesus now hanging out in Matthew's house, okay? Hanging out in a tax collector's house, okay? And there were many tax collectors and sinners. Underline that, many tax collectors and sinners. Maybe write your name above that. (laughs) Write my name above that, because that's us. And they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him and the scribes of the Pharisees, underline that, that's verse 16. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Man, that's good news, right? Couple of problems they had. Couple of things that you can know. Problems that they would have had with Jesus feasting with some tax collectors and sinners and you and me, okay? This is what they would have not liked. Number one, the tax system was so incredibly corrupt. Just a little side note. If you're a tax collector, you are probably a crook. You you were probably skimming and stealing from the people you collected taxes from and you were working for the dreaded Roman government. Okay, so you were kind of hated. If you took this job, you were pretty much settled into the fact no one's gonna like me in my neighborhood, okay? No one's inviting me to dinner. That's one thing you can know about these people. The other thing you can know is that Jesus is now openly befriending these people. Listen, chapter, chapter two, verse one even tells us, and we're gonna see it over and over and over again. What we see is that there are many great crowds. In fact, we see that they press in, right? We see they're pressing in to touch him. He has to pull away and get away from the crowds because they're so great. So know this, that when he chooses to do this, like he's sending a message, like he knows everyone's watching him. I always think of it this way. It's so funny. Like I imagine those, those um, Pharisees, and this is completely in my crisp brain. So do not write this down. This is not real true. This is how I think of it. I just imagine them like in flowy robes and like they have really bad, terrible face expressions, right? Like they're real mad about everything and they're carrying around a clipboard. <laughs> That's how I see them. They're like, everything Jesus does that they don't like, they're like, at eh, check. Yeah, that was, oh, oh, he's feasting with some losers. All right, check. You know, and I'm like, that's what it felt like. Cause you see over and over that we know that the crowds were great, but these dudes were in the crowd, amen. They knew everything he was doing. And because they knew everything he was doing, he knew that they knew everything he was doing. So don't miss that. Don't, don't just assume this was just casual lunch, you know, at corner bakery with, with the tax collectors. No, he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly what he was saying. I think about this, um, Luke chapter 15, jot that down. Go read that when you get a minute. You've heard it before. It's the whole idea that, um, that, that Jesus is gonna go after the one and he's got a hundred sheep, right? 99 go one way and one goes off. And he's like, hold up, I gotta go after the one. That's our savior. You see, what we're seeing here, you know, don't, don't you think sometimes like I do. When I go through the Bible, there's times like that, like the whole sheep thing. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. But I, don't, I need to see like a practical example that I can understand. This is a practical example that you can understand. This is Jesus going after the one. This is Jesus sitting around his table with a bunch of people that no one will sit with, especially not the guys with the clipboards, Right? I love that. He pursues us. He pursues love. He's not waiting for us to clean up. Here's what I hear him saying through this. He's saying this, yes, even you. Even you, even me, every one of us, right? Well, 
the feasting. They didn't like that. They didn't like who he was eating with. They didn't like who he was hanging out with. You know what else they didn't like? They didn't like that he wasn't fasting. Okay, fasting. Um, if we had more time, we would go more into the spiritual disciplines of fasting, but I'm gonna try to go over it real high level for you. Here's what you just need to know here. You need to know that they were mad because Jesus wasn't doing what they thought he should do, okay? Verse 18 goes like this. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, okay? John, that's John the Baptist, remember? And he had disciples. He had dudes that kind of went around with him, followed him. And people came in and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus then goes into this whole thing about being um, the wedding guests, right? And the bridegroom, how the bridegroom is present. Then he does this whole thing about the wineskins and old wine and all this. Here's what I think we need to understand from all of this. Jesus is saying this, his guys are not gonna follow the rule of fasting. You know why? Because fasting at the time for, for Jewish followers, here's when they did it. They did it when they were in mourning or when they were looking to seek God's favor, okay? That was just generally what they were supposed to do. You can go look that up. Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 31. That's the law. That's what they were supposed to do. You know what the Pharisees were doing? The dudes with the clipboards? They were fasting twice a week. They were fasting on uh, Mondays and Thursdays. And let me assure you, the majority of them were making sure everyone knew it. You see, they were about a show, right? They were about earning. And Jesus is basically saying here, hey guys, there's no cause for mourning. It's cause for celebration because the bridegroom is in the building, amen? And he alludes to the fact that he will not always be here. And that's kind of reading between the lines. But I do believe that he's speaking to the disciples primarily, maybe everybody else because the crowds are all following him. But he's basically saying, hey, right now, no fasting. But there will come a time. Old customs were incompatible with the new arrival of the kingdom of God. And this was like, we talked about this in our small group thing. You know, you're, I, it was hard I mean, let's give them some grace here. It was difficult, right? To go all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years believing this thing. And isn't it like people, don't we do this? We take something good. We take something that God does and then we add stuff on it, right? And that's what they were doing. They were just adding things on top of what God intended. And so now Jesus is basically going, all right, we got to clean up house. And it's hard. Change is hard. Amen? Change is hard. Well, the other thing I thought about when I was looking at this, I was like, these practices, you know, these spiritual practices of fasting, just a side note, you know, practices must always have a purpose. They have to have a purpose, right? Like Jesus is never about the show of it. There's always a reason. And at this time, you got guys walking around with their clipboards and stuff. And I, I'm just saying, this is just me. I suspect some of their purposes behind their fasting and some of the things that they were doing, their rituals were not purely intended to please God. I don't know how this looks for you in your regular life. You know, maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe, maybe you're trying to make a decision about a tithing or donating, okay? Maybe, maybe. I would suggest this. Make it um, not about the amount. Make it not about people seeing you tear off the check, but rather about your heart. Lord, I want to give. I want to do what you show me, Right? Maybe it's um, that you're signing up to serve. Maybe you're like, you feel led, like, like the Lord has equipped you with a little time and, and you're just like, I'm gonna give my time and I'm gonna serve. And then you show up and, and you're, you're the chair stacker instead of the whatever and it's really disappointing and it's not where you wanna be. We've all been there, right? 
But how about rather than have a heart that's about recognition or a heart that's about, um, you know, the things that we decide, we trust God and say, I'm here. I'm here. I don't know. That was how I felt when I looked at that. I thought it made me kind of check myself. You know, do I do the, the fasting, maybe figuratively or, or literally, I don't know. Do I do that for the right reasons or am I doing that um, to, to bring glory to God and to seek that righteousness or am I doing it, you know, to, to be a show? I don't know. Well, the last um, thing about the rules that I felt like we needed to really cover was the Sabbath, the Sabbath thing. You like how I made up a word there? I love that I did that. I added ing to the end of a word, made it a verb. You're welcome. That's what we do at church. Sabbath thing. Jesus ruffled some feathers. He got them mad. There was a couple different ways he did it. Um, For the sake of time, I'm not gonna read every word, but I want you to look at chapter two, starting in verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. I thought, I think of them like kind of walking and you know, those disciples, God bless them. They're just a misfit little group of special guys, aren't they? Like I could just imagine, right? Some of the troublemakers like, oh, I'll just see what happened. I don't know. That's just how I look at it. I just think it's funny that they were doing that. They knew better. In verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Again, they're following them. What is happening, right? Like I just, now I have these guys in my mind, like the crowds, yes. But then the Pharisees, you know, following behind, just taking notes. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then you bump down a few verses. Jesus actually refers to a really great um, situation that happened with King David that they would have recognized, right? So he's basically quoting the Bible to them, quoting the book of the law, the truth, And in verse 27, he says this, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this is where he really shook them. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's saying things here, guys, that we read over and we're like, what, grain, son of man? These, These things would have just absolutely just destroyed this quote unquote theology that these guys were running around living they're like, wait a minute, what is he saying? Not only is he quote unquote working on the Sabbath by plucking a piece of grain, but he's also saying that he's the Lord. It would have blown their minds. And then you move down into chapter three. In chapter three, verse one, it says, again, he entered the synagogue, a synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Remember this? Verse two, and they watched Jesus. They watched him, didn't they? They watched to see whether or not he would heal the guy on the Sabbath and so that they might accuse him. So they were just trying to set traps for him. They were excited about the opportunity to set some traps, right? Verse three, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, and I love this, verse four. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill And so he's kind of throwing back in their face, like looking at this guy standing here with this arm and he's basically throwing it back to them saying, you tell me what's good, what's right. We go down and we see um, in verse four, it continues on, but they were silent, verse five. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. I love that we get glimpses into the heart of Jesus. He was angry righteously, you know, just, just angry, but he was also grieved. He grieved at their hardness of heart and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, put a star on this little sentence. The Pharisees went out immediately 
held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So lots of stuff going on here. First thing that's happening, they are saying that he is breaking Sabbath. Now, if you go back and look at Exodus 20, verses eight through 11, there's a whole thing that God laid out about Sabbath. You see, God had intention with Sabbath. He knew that we needed it. But by Jesus's actions, he's declaring that he is Lord over the Sabbath. That was huge. It was more than just pulling grain, guys. It was Jesus saying, this is who I am. And in verse six, the murder plot begins. That's what verse six was. Verse six has them going to the, to the governing agencies and saying, we gotta do something about this. This was his claim to divine authority. Instead of changing hearts, verse six, we see them go and plot murder. I wonder, I wonder how many people who were following, how many Pharisees perhaps, who were having all of their thoughts and ideas and rules and regulations upturned, how many of them were conflicted in that moment? Like, wait a minute, this is different. I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I think about the same today. You know, there's so many people following and watching and seeing and all these things that are happening all the time and that you still have the Pharisees over there are just waiting. They're waiting to check your attendance boxes when you don't come to church. They're waiting to say, yeah, but you do this. So I can't believe in a savior that you say you follow, right? It felt very close to home. Well, we then see kind of a cool little um, glimpse into the followers, the friends, and the family of Jesus Christ. Where were his loyalties? Um, I know some of us, especially those of us that are mamas, are all mad right now because we're like, Jesus bad. He was not nice to his mom. Well, we're going to go there. Just chill. He's fine. He didn't do anything wrong. I'll explain it in a minute. Um, but let's take a look. Let's examine his, the followers that were, fo- that were coming and, and going with him everywhere and the friends and then his family. Followers, chapter 3, verse 8. Again, I mentioned before, we're gonna see a lot of references to how great the crowd was. Mark is trying to help us set the scene. You know, he's helping us understand because a lot of these things are happening because of who is there, because of how it's received, okay? So here he starts out with, when the, crowd, when the great crowd heard all that he was saying, they came to him, verse nine, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. I love that Jesus is practical. We do not want to crush Jesus at this point in the story, right? But it's hard. It's hard to imagine the massiveness of what was going on. Um, but it's important for us to realize that. There's, there's a mass amount of followers, so much that he has to take practical reasons to get away from the crowd. Verse 10, it goes on, it says, For he had healed many, so that all, circle all, who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Couple things about these big crowds and how it's spreading. I want you to pay attention to. First, that he was practical, that he realized he has to pull away sometimes. Second, notice it says here, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed into him. So they are looking for the show, right? I mean, no disrespect to the people. Like if I had great aunt Susie had a broken leg, I'd be dragging great aunt Susie to go find this guy and say, let's put her up to the front. You know, maybe he's gonna do something to her. And so they're looking for what they think they need. 
physical healing, right? Because he's been doing that. But see, what we're gonna learn shortly is that Jesus is, is really just wanting these people, these crowds to come so that he can teach and tell about the new kingdom through him. So it's more than just fixing Aunt Susie's broken leg, okay? The second thing I want you to notice about this, like when we're talking about, um, this is kind of a different example. In verse 12, it says, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now those are the evil evil spirits. Okay, I wanna clarify something real quick. Here, um, well, let me me back up. You're gonna see multiple times, and we even did in chapter one, right? Where Jesus tells them, hey, I'm gonna do this magical, awesome, cool thing. And then you just be real quiet about it, right? And it's so confusing because we're like, tell the world. Go back up to verse eight. When the great crowd heard that all that he was doing, he, he excuse me, when he, he had to go up to the mountain and he had to get away. He had to get a boat and he had to get away because they were gonna crush him. So understand this. Jesus knew the timing of everything and Jesus knew what was best. So when there's times when he says, don't go tell everybody yet, there's purpose behind that, we can trust that, okay? They didn't know what was coming, he did. At this time, when he's talking directly to these evil spirits, I want you to realize something. The chief goal here is to teach and to call people to the kingdom of God. It's not a show. He wants to make himself known on his own timing. He is not gonna give a microphone to an evil spirit, okay? Even if it's true, he is not gonna give them the stage. He is not gonna say to them, have some authority, go tell people things. Because you know what happens? Even if they're speaking truth, they're gonna listen We don't want him listening to them. Jesus in his own time, in his own way, with his own plan and his own purpose will make himself known. Does that sound a little more logical? It's less about him trying to keep a secret. It's more about him controlling the way this whole thing is playing out, okay? Chief goal, always teach and call people to the kingdom of God, not the show. Well, the followers, again, are looking for a show But Jesus has some friends, doesn't he? The 12, right? The apostles, the disciples. We know about them. Um, We know that he's called several of them at this point. We also know now that a couple other people have been added to the pile. We got the tax collector, that nasty guy. You know, he's in there too. But in verse 13, we see that, that we get a little more detail. We get this list, okay? Something I want you to know, you get a list of the 12 here. Every one of the four gospels gives a list of the 12. Sometimes they look a little different. Sometimes the ordering's a little different. Sometimes the names, you know how there's the double name thing and it can be confusing sometimes. But just know that anytime you see a list of the 12, it's, it's gonna be um, from the perspective of the author, okay? So here, it's really interesting. We'll look at a couple of things. Follow along with me, verse 13. Then he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. Underline that, those whom he desired. Have you ever heard the disciples just described that way? Have you ever thought of yourself that way? I have not. I thought that was so cool. Those whom he desired. And they came to him, verse 14, and he appointed the 12 whom he also called the apostles so that they might be with him. And then we go into this list, okay? And for the sake of time, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through everything, but there's three names. Oh, there's, there's a couple, there's five names. I want you to really look at this. In verse 16, when he starts the list, who's the first name he mentions? Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, circle Simon. We go down in verse 17, we see he talks about James and John and they were some of the fishermen and the sons of thunder and we love them. In verse 18, you got Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, but I want you to do this. Um, circle Thomas, 
circle Matthew, circle Simon the Zealot, and circle Judas at the end. You see the little phrase after Judas's name? How'd you like that to be your footnote? Who betrayed him? And we know that's coming, right? Here's what I want you to notice about the names I had you circle. A couple cool things. This list is, is amazing for some reasons that I would have never known had I not done the research. Simon the Zealot. Zealots at the time were a group of people who wanted to overthrow Rome, okay? Vehemently against the Roman government, okay? So isn't that interesting that he's with a little tribe, a little crew that includes a tax collector, Matthew, Right? So remember, not all, not all these guys are thinking the same way. Not all these guys come from the same perspective, the same point of view. Not all these guys are probably agreeing about everything. Amen? Anybody know any believers? You don't agree with everything they say? I love that these two are listed. The other three that just, it blows my mind every time I remember this is that he also has Thomas included. And if you know anything about God's word, you know later Thomas will do what? He will doubt you got Peter included. And what does Peter do? He denies the Lord three times. Even when Jesus told him he's going to do it, he still was like, no, I won't do that. And he did, right? And then you have Judas. And what did Judas, Judas do? He betrayed him. How about that list of 12? How about that list of friends that he loved, that he loved with his life, you know? These guys were handpicked and they would follow him and learn from him and be with him. And eventually they would be sent by him and with his authority, they would proclaim the gospel and they would change the world. These 12 are why we're here. They tell the world, you know? And it, it, it's not a great message sometimes. Sometimes it's really hard because sometimes you wish you could be one of these guys and go and go, you know what? If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, everything's gonna be easy and great. Anybody ever had a life like that? No. It's hard. These guys will die as martyrs for a cause, for a man, for a God. These are his friends. They were average, imperfect, and unimpressive. Anybody have some hope today? Yes, <laughs> right? Some of them smelled like fish. I love that. They were simply willing to follow. A few years ago, um, one of my favorite pastors had said it this way when he talks about, you know, following um, after, you know, your faith and what you're trying to, to run toward. He said, you know, think of it like a marathon, like you're running a race, you know? And we're all running at different paces. And sometimes, you know, we, we, somebody's got to bend over and tie their shoe and somebody's, you know, dehydrated and has cramps or whatever, but we're all going the same direction, right? And that's what we want in our friends, in our 12, in our tribe. We want to find people that are running the same direction with us. And that sometimes they're gonna lift our arms up. Sometimes they're gonna help us tie our shoe. And sometimes we're gonna do the same for them. Jesus's friends, well, they were simply willing to follow. The last group of people, the loyalties were his family. And I mentioned before, like some people get all upset about this part. So we're gonna try real hard to cover it and get, get some clarity. Verses 20 through 21, we see the first mention of his, his um, earthly family, okay? His family of origin. Something to note, this is the only place in the entire Bible that this little section exists. Verse 20 and 21 only exist here in Mark. Luke and Matthew decided, I'm not going there. I ain't gonna say that. So Mark does. 
And so we know that he's now in Capernaum. It says, then he went home. Okay, so he's going home. And the crowd gathered again. Remember? Remember the crowd? Remember the crowd he had to get on a boat to get away from? Remember the crowd he had to get on a mountain to get away from? Remember the crowd that was pressing in all of the people that were demon oppressed and that, you know, Aunt Susie's broken leg? Remember? All of them were home now with him. Okay, so remember that. The crowd gathered again. They couldn't even eat. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Anybody ever said that about someone in your family? Not me, I'm just pretending to, yeah. Well, we'll bookmark that and then move down a little bit. Just remember that there's a little thing that happens there. I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. But in verse 31, we see this other part about the family. Okay, so jump down there with me. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and they called him and a crowd was sitting by him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat with him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, for whomever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, don't be mad. Here's what I want you to think about. First of all, his family, the motive was good, right? The motive was good. Consider the circumstance. What do we know? We know that the crowds were dangerously pressing in. This is their Jesus. This is their brother. This is their son. Do you think for a minute that this might've been his mama going out there and grabbing his ear and going, enough is enough. Take this kid inside and let's have dinner. Maybe, maybe that they just cared that much about him, that they were worried about him. Maybe they wanted to protect him. Maybe they were concerned about the direction that this madness was headed. Yeah, maybe. The motive was good, but the purpose was wrong. See, but they didn't know this. Here's what we know. We know, obviously, that Mary believed, right? Because the whole virgin birth thing and the angel and everything. But what we don't know is what Mary knew what was coming. What did Mary know about what it would look like? Did Mary think, I don't know, I'm a mom. I would be petrified for the safety of my child. I mean, he's the savior of the universe. He's also her baby, okay? I would be petrified for what was happening because all of a sudden, remember I mentioned before, now there's, there's starting to be grumblings about how they're gonna take him down and they're gonna murder him. So there is more going on here than him just being a jerk, okay? That's not what he did. This is the only mention of Mary in the gospel of Mark, interestingly, only time we hear her name, see her mentioned. We know that Mary believed, but here's what we also know. James and Jude, those were two of his brothers that we know of, that they didn't believe that he was who he said he was. They didn't believe until when, do you know? After the resurrection, when he came back. And then they went, oh, hey, sorry. <laughs> All the things I said, sorry. Anybody else been there? Well, I love that, that we see this. We see this turmoil, like inside a family. We all have family stuff, man. And that's what was happening here. Listen, something important for you to know. He never, ever, 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 you can write that again, ever, forsakes his unbelieving earthly family. He never does. He may say some things and say it in a way that you don't quite understand culturally, but he never forsakes them ever. And he will always, always pursue God above all else. That's what his statement was saying. It wasn't meant as disrespect. It was meant as, but first is always my Lord, okay? 
well, I hope that you're not mad at him anymore because he did not sin and he was not ugly to his mama, but I know that was hard. Listen, we're gonna move quickly because there's two more things I wanna hit before we close up. The first is this, that Jesus knew all of this is happening, okay? But he also knew that there are some real needs that we have that we can relate to if we really look closely here. And go back in, in chapter two, at the very beginning of chapter two, we saw a healing, remember? And that was the awesome thing. And I'm not gonna go into the detail because you're gonna talk about it in your group, where the cool friends come in and they can't get in the room because the crowds were so great, right? Everybody was crowded in, which side note, who was in that room with them? The scribes of the Pharisees were in there. So they had to get there early to get a front row seat, right? So they were there. But anyway, the guys come in and they, they, they lower their friend down, remember this? and they want him to be healed. And there's so many things that are happening, but I want you to think about this. The most important part about that miracle is what Jesus does first. What does Jesus do first in verse five? Before he even heals anything, he forgives him of his sins, doesn't he? First, because he knew that was the most important thing. You see, they thought it was the paralysis it wasn't the paralysis. I, I immediately thought about um, those times in life where, where we think and we ask for and we hope for and we lower our friends into the room, amen, and we beg for physical healing and it does not come. Remember, we see several times we see the word all versus the word many. We see people are bringing all the people that are sick and broken and have demon possession and Aunt Susie's. We see all of them and he heals many of them, but not all of them. Before God did anything, he did what only God could do. Jesus healed. He forgave. Hard truth, right? Sometimes we don't get the physical healing we hope for, but we always, always, always have access to the forgiveness. That's the most important thing we need to know. Healing may not always come the way we want it to, but we always have forgiveness. Always, okay? That's one thing we cannot leave here misunderstanding about the way Jesus did this. The second thing we need to understand as we walk out of this room is this, that we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. There's a troubling verse in um, two verses, uh, three, I can't, I don't, you know how I do, I can't count. Um, go with me, chapter three, verses 28 through 30. It's a very difficult passage. And remember I told you at the beginning of Mark, um, God bless Mark, he's gonna give us some things that are, that are troubling, that are difficult. And this is one of them. And we're gonna talk about, we're gonna get real clear because if there's anything you leave with, if you've been taking a nap, wake up now because you need to hear this. I feel like we all need to hear this. And I, I think Jesus is putting exclamation points on it. And here's why I think that. Look with me on verse chapter three, verse 28. Truly, I say to you, the thing you need to know about that phrase, underline that phrase. You will see that phrase 13 times in the book of Mark. When you see that phrase, it's only ever spoken in the gospels and it's only ever spoken by Jesus. And it is a solemn affirmation. In the Chris version, it means pay attention now. This is important. Here, it means considering the previous section that Jesus is issuing this strong warning. You see, there was a lot of accusations going on about who Jesus was and what his motives were. And there was a lot of accusations about what he was doing and that he was undermining what they believed. Okay, so he's basically speaking to the scribes at this moment and he's talking about their belief in regard to Jesus. So pay attention, this is important. Truly I say to you, all sins, circle that, all sins, will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
Verse 29, now this is the part that's hard, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, for they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. Here's what I need you to hear. Please, please hear me. All sins will be forgiven. You see, Jesus went to die on a cross, not for like some of them, not for like the ones that you think are not so bad, you know, but then there's some that are just like super terrible and surely he didn't die for those. Never, ever, ever doubt what Jesus died for, all sins. There's only one thing that could ever be done that could not have salvation secured, only one sin. And that is looking in the face of God and saying, I know what you say. You say Jesus came to die. You say Jesus came to die for me and that I can receive the Holy Spirit. You say that, but I want no part of it. That's the sin. That's it. I talked about this in the beginning of this book. We, we, we do not have the luxury of being neutral to Jesus Christ. Amen? You do not have the luxury. Interestingly, a lot of people take this out of context because they say, is this just a sin? Is this just a occurrence? I want you to understand this is not one sinful act or word that is unforgivable. This is an attitude, okay? This is basically saying that you reject the saving power of the Holy Spirit. It's a preference to darkness over light. It's a preference, it's a choice. That's the God of free will. He gives us that choice and it breaks his heart every time we say no. I hope you have not said no. If you go look up John 3, 19, you know this, that he is light, but there is a lot of darkness, amen? A couple of verses I want you to jot down before I close. I want you to remember these verses. The first is Mark 3, 28. I tricked you there. See, we just, we just covered that, Mark 3, 28. Here's why I want you to make note of it. Because it says what I just told you, that all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins. He hung on the cross for all of them, amen? John three thirty six. jot that down. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the bad news for the people that say, you know what, good for you, whatever works for you. That's their eternity. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, it says, my little children, this is John writing again, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, but we do. So then he follows with, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who did Jesus die for? The sins of the whole world, all the people all the sin, all the time. That old sin, the now sin, the future sin, he died for all of it. Don't misunderstand the word here, okay? Last one, John 10, 15, it says, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Remember, you have this great shepherd who came to live and to lay down and die for you. The great sin, the great unforgivable sin is to look at him and say, you know what? I, I don't have room for that. Well, look, in closing, so much, right? 
I, I can understand how, how, how crazy the time must have been because Jesus is absolutely turning the kingdom upside down, amen? And thank God for that because those rules that are in the Old Testament, you will fail at all of them. We will never be able to do it. But Jesus came for us. Are you living and doing from an identity of, or are you living a life of striving for one? Are you trying to earn something? Because let me tell you, you don't have to. It's what Jesus came to say. It's what he came to do. It's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he resurrected. So that you can know that you can put all of that on him, on the cross with him. Where have you put your faith? I told you every week, and I'm gonna move really fast because of course I'm late, um, that we're gonna take action. There's three things we're gonna do this time. I wanna challenge you with three things. The first is to remember, grab a, grab a note card. When you go through math, um, excuse me, Mark chapter four, that's where we're gonna be this next week. There's a lot of parables. We're gonna do the parable thing. I know it'll be fun, but also confusing sometimes because the parables sometimes are smarter than me. So I always, I just, yes. So write down a verse that you wanna memorize. Maybe it's just something that you just wanna remember. Maybe it's something you feel like God's trying to remind you. Just write it down. Put it in front of you this week. The second thing is I want you to risk something. You think about those friends. They risked a lot to lower their buddy into that room, didn't they? I don't know what the risk is. It may not be great. It may not be that you're potentially gonna be arrested or shamed in your village for the rest of your life, but maybe there's a person that you know that the Lord is pressing on you to share Jesus with. I don't mean you have to go stand on the corner and preach to him. I'm just saying like, have coffee. I'm just saying like, love them, you know, where they are. Don't hit them over the head with God's word. Instead, love them, earn the right to be heard. I don't know. Maybe you could be living out your faith and it could accomplish something in the lives of someone else, maybe. Ask him, show me. Show me where you want me to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Show me, God. Third thing, last thing, reach out. I know that there are people in your life, past, current, whatever, who played a key role in bringing you to know Jesus and maybe just a key role in bringing you to come find out about him. I don't know where you are. There's a reason you're in this room and it's probably people, maybe some of the people that are with you, but it may be people from your history, maybe somebody from your childhood. I, I don't know, but I would say this, take a minute and reach out, take a minute and just show them some gratitude. Maybe send them a note, make a phone call, send a text, drink some caffeine. I don't know. Take a minute to look them in the face and say, thank you for the risk, right? Well, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna let you guys go talk through all this because there's rich, rich things that Jesus wants us to know about him and his kingdom because it is here and it is now, amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you so much for these words and what you have to teach us about this upside down kingdom of yours, Lord. We pray that, that, um, the, that we don't try to find the things that you didn't say. Lord, let us stay focused on what you did say. Let us stay focused on what we do know. And in those times when we can't really understand and there's a mystery, just help us to, to ease into that and find comfort in knowing that you are a God that's much bigger than one we could create in our own minds. We thank you for that. We thank you for the places that we don't understand that are mysterious. It calls us to faith. And I, I pray for a strengthening of that faith. We thank you for your son. And we thank you for this day in Jesus' name, amen.